Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Hide and Seek, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in November 2019. After you listen to the stories, stick around to listen to our special guest, Leslie Tai. Leslie is a film instructor and a theater director who will join us in studio to speak with me about the theme for our next show. In our first story, a fallen tree in a storm leads Dean Connors to discover some concerning things around his house. My wife and I live in a 100-plus-year-old farmhouse near Cedar. When we first saw the house with our realtor, one of the things we fell in love with was the towering white pine trees all around it. One of them was especially captivating. When we went upstairs and walked into what would become our workroom, we looked out a big double window right into the midst of this enormous tree. We looked at eye level right at a huge limb that came out of the side, of, almost like another trunk, and then arched up to become part of the top. It wasn't quite close enough to the house, but it almost seemed like you could climb out the window and just climb right into that tree. On the morning of the winter solstice in 2012, we were lying in bed, awake but not yet ready to get up. It was dark. The power had gone out the night before. We had a fierce winter storm with lots of wet, heavy snow. You know, that kind that packs itself onto every available surface like wet concrete. All through that night, clumps of snow had been falling off the pine branches onto the roof of the house. Bang. 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 We didn't get a whole lot of sleep that night. At about 8 o'clock in the morning, there was a tremendous bang, and the whole house shook. We heard the sound of breaking glass and splintering wood. Diane leaped out of bed and ended up on the floor on all fours. I think that's the fastest I've ever seen her move. <laughs> Both of us were saying, what the hell was that? When we recovered from the initial shock, I got dressed and went outside to see what had happened. As it, become, as it became light enough to see, what I saw was that a huge limb from our favorite pine tree, in fact, that 23-inch diameter limb that we looked at through our workroom window, had broken off the side of the tree from the weight of the snow and smashed our front porch. Our bedroom sits just above where the porch attaches to the main part of the house. And we also saw that the limb had hit the edge of that upper roof right above our bed before landing with full force on the porch roof. Now we've been living in the house for well over 20 years, but for some reason, until then, hadn't fully realized that, that it's built mostly out of two by fours. And not just the wall studs, but the roof rafters, too. Now, unlike today's one and a half by three and a half inch so-called two by fours, 
our rafters are good old-fashioned two-inch by four-inch two-by-fours. But still, two-by-fours. If the house were built today, the rafters would most likely be at least two-by-eights. So I'm pretty sure if that limb had landed a little higher up, I wouldn't be here telling you this story. As the day became lighter and we investigated further, we saw from the inside that a smaller branch had poked through the bedroom wall about three feet from where my head had been in the bed. A little later when we took off the drywall from the short knee wall and sloped ceiling behind the bed, we found another branch that had come most of the way through the roof about three feet from where Diane's head had been. It sure looked like that tree was out to get us. Well, we got some insurance money to rebuild the porch and replace the drywall in our bedroom. So we decided to include in our renovation plans some other things we'd been wanting to do. Since we had to remove and replace the drywall, and since old houses never have enough electrical outlets, we decided it would be a good opportunity to put in another outlet on the other side of the bed. And then we thought, well, if we're doing that, maybe we should look at the wiring in general and just make sure it's okay. Did I mention it's a 100-plus-year-old house? <laughs> it was not at all okay. It wasn't a total surprise. We had found an abandoned outlet hidden inside a wall between the bathroom and the kitchen during a previous remodel. We had no idea it was there because it had been patched over with drywall on the kitchen side. When we found it, my friend who was helping me with that project said, you know, we probably should test that just to make sure. We did. And yeah, it was still alive. And for this current project, we had some added incentive. That February, while we were still cleaning up and decided, deciding how we wanted to rebuild, some good friends of ours had had an electrical fire that did extensive damage at Niatawana, a local inn and community gathering place, and a structure similar in age to our house. For, Di for Diane and I, that was a wake-up call, a realization of, holy shit, that could have been us. And it spurred us on our quest to remove every old wire from our house and replace it with a new one. And the things that another friend and I found in the process of doing just that were pretty scary. In the attic above the kitchen, we found wires that had been cut off and just left dangling down into the cellulose insulation. We tested them, and yeah, they're still alive. We found out that none of the outlets in the house were grounded, which made it more likely that a power surge might have caused a spark that could have led to an electrical fire. Since they weren't grounded, we used a lot of those little adapters that allows a three-pronged plug to be plugged into a two-pronged outlet, because that's what you do when you have an old house with an old electrical system. And because there weren't enough outlets, we had more things plugged into most of them than we probably should have. Some newer wires had been put in 
years ago before we bought the place. But the old wires were never taken out. So we also had two or three generations of wires snaking all over the place with no easy way to tell which ones were active and which ones weren't. When we pulled on some of the older wires, the insulation just crumbled and fell off. So when we were almost finished with this part of the project, after five weeks of pulling wires through walls, climbing from the basement up to the attic and back down again, getting covered head to toe in cellulose insulation, before we'd even started to rebuild the porch, there was one last wire that we were having a hard time tracking down. It went through the attic above the kitchen and then disappeared into the wall of the main part of the house near our bedroom. We couldn't find it coming out anywhere in the bedroom or in the attic above or any place else we looked. With one person in the basement flipping breaker switches, another person in the attic testing wires, communicating by cell phone, we still couldn't figure it out. We were baffled. Where the hell did that wire go? Finally, after much searching and a certain amount of anguish, in a fit of either inspiration or desperation, I'm not sure which, I went upstairs into the, our little bathroom just off our bedroom, opened up the vanity, and started pulling out sponges and cleaning supplies and whatever else had ended up in there. And there, way in the back, behind the water lines and the drain, there was an outlet in the baseboard. Now, it used to be in our bedroom, and when we walled off a, a corner to make a little half bath, it had ended up in the bathroom and inside the vanity. We finally found the end point of the mystery wire. But there was one more surprise in store for us. We discovered that the builder who had put in the bathroom for us He'd installed a light fixture and an outlet next to the sink, ran a wire down through the wall that came out at the bottom behind the vanity, and then rather than connecting it properly in a junction box, he just attached a plug to the end and plugged it into that existing outlet, which was, of course, like all the others, not grounded. But given all of this, it's a wonder the house hadn't burned down many times over. But luckily, it hadn't. And I'm happy to report that we now have a completely rewired house, <laughs> a brand new rebuilt front porch, and a big stack of beautiful white pine lumber. <laughs> and that tree that nearly did us in, in the end, it very likely saved our lives. Thank you. In the next story, a car rental failure keeps Betsy Hammerberg from following a planned tour, but instead she finds something more special. So my mother and my husband Chris and I were um, on the last day of a five-day trip to Jordan, and I had a list of the things we needed to see that day. 
Um, I am not a go-with-the-flow kind of traveler. Um, I have this idea that our world is so big and so amazing. And at the time, it was kind of like every time I saw something unique and amazing, it just made me more of a complete human. Um, to me, that was what made me a complete person. Um, and today was the day that I was most excited about on our trip to Jordan. We were going to see a crusader castle with an escape tunnel um, and salt stalactites at the Dead Sea and um, this Byzantine-era mosaic map of the Holy Land in a church. So uh, none of these things were near each other, and we were going to spend quite a lot of time in our car. So we began at the Crusader Castle, which was this sandstone ruin at the top of a big hill. And we greeted the guards quickly, smile, hello, paid the admission fee, went in, and Chris and I started immediately looking for the entrance to the escape tunnel. And um, it wasn't really marked in any way. Uh, the guidebooks were pretty frustratingly vague. And so we were the only people there. So we found a guard and kind of tried to explain what we were looking for, a lot of charades. And eventually, he pointed us towards an arched opening. And we hoped that we had been successful. It wasn't some ancient root cellar that was going to collapse on our heads if we made too loud of a noise. So we started down came to a turn, stone steps, down, more turns, and um, yeah, kept going down and down and down, and it was dark. It was dark in this way that I'd never experienced before. Um, there was no, no way your eyes could adjust. Um, you're in the middle of a rock, and it was heavy, and it was thick and rich, and just a very primal feeling. So we kept going down, 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 and we didn't, we weren't prepared at all, so we were using the lights on our phones for illumination, and, uh, but we didn't want to run out of batteries, so we turned them off quite a bit, and I just was imagining, what, what would this look like if it were illuminated by torches, and how many hands have touched this wall over the past 900 years, and what were the people doing who were coming down here? Were they running? Were they, were they fleeing? Were they pursuing? Were they in fear? And I just went into my head, which is what I do, and I was just weaving these stories of danger and adventure. And then we came out into the sunshine, and my mom picked us up in the car. We drove back up to the top of the hill, and as we started getting towards the top, the car started making some kind of jerking, grinding noises. Um, I'm not going to make them for you because it's not car talk. But I just said to myself, you know what? It's a steep hill. No big deal. So I got back up to the top and checked out the rest of the castle, checked our watches. We really had to go if we were going to make it to the mosaic map and the Dead Sea. So got back in the car. I pulled out the map right away so we could optimize our travel route and looked out the window, and it was gorgeous. It was just beautiful. The dust had blown away. It was a beautiful, sunny day. And I just had that feeling of, it's, it's intoxicating, that feeling of I'm about to go see something totally unique that's going to just grow my world a little bit. And so my mom gets in, turns the key, little sputter, then stopped. Um, no big deal. Sometimes cars don't start the first time, right? So she tried it again, sputter, come on, come on, silence. 
again, I refuse to be worried because sometimes I convince myself that if I want something enough, the universe will come through. So a third time, sputters. Maybe they sound better this time. Yep. Silence. And I just kept thinking, it has to start. It has to start. Maybe someone just else, else just had to try. So Chris tied, tried sputters. They sounded better. Silence. Sputters. Silence. Sputters. Silence. The castle security guards came over and tried to help, but at this point, the car wasn't even making any noise, no sputters. So we gave up, called the car rental company, and since we were a half hour away from Petra, which is one of the new seven wonders of the world, I thought, no big deal, it'll be here soon. But nope, uh, they don't have a car rental place in Petra, so they told us it would be three to four hours until they could bring us a new car. And I had to accept that there was no way I was going to see the rest of the things on my list. And I knew that it was probably the only time I was ever going to visit Jordan because as much as I tell myself, oh, I'm going to come back, there's so much more to see. Every time I plan a trip, there's always something new. Um, and so I was angry. I was angry that the car company had given us a faulty car. I was angry that Petra had been overhyped and we had spent way too much of our short trip there. And because it had so many tourists there, all the prices had been overinflated. And I just felt like we had been taken advantage of the entire time. And I was angry. And I, I know it's ridiculous, but I just needed something to pin that anger on. And Petra was there. And the car company was there. And I went back and forth between really wanting to finish this list and just wanting to be done and go home, just done with this country. And I was telling all this to Chris and trying not to cry when I turned around and saw that the security guards were walking over to one of the tables in the courtyard with this huge platter of food. And it was hummus and yogurt and french fries, always french fries, and bread and eggplant and these little donut balls that are actually pretty gross. They're like really sweet, uh, covered in uh, syrup. And it seemed like a really ambitious amount of food for three people. And then they gestured us over and invited us to eat with them. And I was surprised and really touched uh, by this act of generosity. So we sat down with them. And in the words and phrases that we knew of each other's languages, um, we talked about our families and our homes and our jobs. And it was an adventure. It wasn't exploration, but it was connection and something that I hadn't even realized I'd been missing. Um, we never made it to the Byzantine map. We never made it to those salt stalactites, but I've seen pictures. And the picture I have of these three security guards smiling in front of this huge platter of mostly French fries is um, my favorite photo of the trip. And I realized that there's a considerable difference between seeing a place and experiencing a place. And all it takes is to sit down and share a meal or have a conversation. Thank you. Thank you. 
Next, Jen Loop wonders how long it will take her fellow campers to realize she's missing. My brother has a cabin in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, in the UP. This is a pretty rustic cabin. It's north of Newberry. It's on the Two-Hearted River, the Two-Heart River. It's near where the Two-Heart kind of uh, lets itself out into Lake Superior. You can take a nice hike from the cabin to Superior. And it's pretty much off the grid. So there's electricity and there's plumbing, but you only use that when you run the generator. So most often, you're hanging out with uh, wood stove heat. There is um, gas-powered lights and also a gas-powered fridge and stove. So it's kind of rough in it, but not exactly. Um, he bought this place with a bunch of college buddies. And they bought this place from a group of guys who had been going up there for about 20 years. They would take their families up there. They would have guys' weekends up there. And like most cabins, family-owned cabins or co-owned cabins, or even state-run cabins you can go and camp in, they have a guest log, right? They have a, a book that anyone who is visiting is supposed to write down their experiences, um, and you kind of feel the place become connected to a lot of different people. Well, for their cabin, one of the things detailed over these 20 years, quite a few times, is something they called First night at cabin syndrome, FNAX. This is the worst acronym <laughs> I think that we can come up with, but first night at cabin syndrome. And you can imagine what this might be. So a place so far off the grid, used by people who have busy lives that go up, down a few different dirt roads, end up in this place, well, first night at the cabin syndrome is you are so disoriented from not having your phone and not having TV and having no noise around you that you don't know what else to do but maybe drink too much. <laughs> so my sister, my brother, my sister's boyfriend at the time, and then a very good friend of my brother and mine, Dave, all went up to the cabin this last Memorial Day weekend. I was super excited because as adults, we don't have a lot of time to hang out with each other as siblings. My sister has two young kids. My brother lives downstate. Um, even holidays, you know, they just get so busy. And so just reconnecting um, as people who know each other the best was going to be wonderful. We've all had pretty tough last five years. My mom was very sick. I'm going through career changes and career growth. I lost two of my favorite animals this past year. But then also really great things were happening. And so I was looking forward to this not so much as an escape, but as a really place, a, a place to reconnect and really figure out, um, have just a break from the day to day. It turns out, though, <laughs> that I was very susceptible <laughs> to FNAX and I, I would, I, when I first got there, I was wandering from room to room, just trying to figure out what I was doing, and totally succumbed by 5 o'clock to, well, I guess I'm drinking. And I had the best time, the worst time. I was enthusiastic. I was angry. I was happy. And I was going through all the emotions of the last five years. They were right there with me. And th what became my tagline for that night was, not dead yet, in a very enthusiastic way, right? So 
I have been fighting and fighting and fighting, you know, life and anxieties and how to be who I want to be and how to get to what I want to get to. And I'm really trying to find that balance, that almost zen, where good things are going to happen and bad things are going to happen. And we're just right here. And not dead yet was really my summary. I was really happy saying it. It was, this can be hopeful. I have things I want to do. I have plans I want to make. And I have time to do it. This was to everyone else's amusement. And I fell asleep very happily in my hammock, in my sleeping bag. I love my sleeping bag. I should sleep in it all the time. Um, in the screened-in porch, it was nice and chilly with extra blankets, eating mustard pretzels, and just mumbling to myself. So of course, what happens when you drink too much? Uh, you wake up probably earlier than you want to because you really have to pee. And I had the headache. I, if anything, when I get hungover, I get headaches. And this was terrible. And we were in this battle, me, myself, in this hammock, was in this battle between I really have to be, it is pre-dawn, it's also very cold, and I can't move, but how's this going to end? <laughs> so eventually, I make myself get up. I'm the first one up. No one else is awake. My sister and her boyfriend are in Hammock City, which we called the screened-in porch with three or four hammocks. And I make my way to the outhouse. So there is plumbing, but you don't use the plumbing unless it's an emergency. And so we have the cabin. We have a sauna building. We have the generator building. And then way back here, we have the outhouse. I got there. That's fine. I shut the door. Outhouse time. And then it came time to leave the outhouse. That door was not giving. So there's a lock on the inside, sure. That was unlocked. What I also realized as I was trying the entirety of that door was there was a lock on the outside, one of these wooden blocks that you would swing over to shut the door so nothing was coming in when you left this facility. This thing was probably like three inches, and I remembered what it looked like as I'm sitting there in there. Um, three or four inches long, I, at least an inch thick, and it had swung all the way shut. I was, I was locked in the outhouse. So what happens when you get locked into a dark box? Um, and Phanax, um, you are a little hungover. You're very hungover. And so I went through all the scenarios, right? I'm a pretty logical thinker. And as I was trying the door, I realized there was a little give in the bottom of the door. The unfortunate thing about this lock was it was also a little high, so it was above my shoulder. It would take arm strength to actually break it, and that's not my forte. And so I was able to push open the bottom of the door at least about an inch and a half, and I wedged my croc, my orange croc, those shoes, <laughs> those really hard plastic shoes, in the bottom of the door, but like not all the way out because I didn't want to be stuck in the outhouse without shoes on. And so I thought that might make some sort of signal to someone out there. Um, but it at least gave me a little bit of daylight. There was also some light coming in the top in one of those like half moon cutouts, half moon and stars that all outhouses have on them. I don't know why, because you use outhouses when it's nighttime. Um, and so I, I was feeling terrible. I was thinking my way through this. And then you think, OK, well, maybe I should scream. No one was going to hear me. No one was awake. I knew how far away I was from everything. And so you don't want to scream yourself out without anyone hearing you, because then you're there with no voice, and then they'll never get you. 
the nightmare scenario down that road is also if you start screaming when you hear them come out of the house and then they turn on the 4 by 4 and the samurai that are in the driveway, they never hear you anyway. And so you still start screaming and to no avail. So, of course, you would think eventually someone's going to use the outhouse. I'm going back and forth with this because sometimes people are still going to the bathroom in the house, so I don't know when that's going to happen. And panic does sort of start to set in when you are in a, now it's bad smelling, <laughs> box with a <laughs> hangover, um, not knowing when anyone is going to come to get to get to you. Uh, so the other scenario is, okay, if I am now stuck in this box, how do I get out? Can I get out on my own? This is a very solidly built outhouse. It's like a nice, nice wood outhouse, like the doors two inch, two inches thick. There's no give to like try to make that lock move. Um, and so I was thinking, you know, if it came to this, I probably could push that door open from the bottom because it was just like a bench and it had like a real toilet seat and all that. Um, so if I put my back against that bench, I was thinking, okay, if I use my legs, like I probably can do this, but I don't want to do this until I don't feel, or before I don't feel terrible. <laughs> and so this has happened twice in my life. I was feeling so run down and out of options and not dead yet, I decided to go back to sleep. So I curled up on the bench, away from the spiders, which I had seen the night before, because you go into an outhouse with your headlamp on, you know where all the spiders are. I just curled up, and it was cold, and I think I actually did fall asleep. I don't even know how. Um, until I think I caught some movement. I must have been drowsing. Um, you know, in that, in that crack in the door, and my friend Dave was walking up, and I very calmly say, I'm locked in here, could you please let me out? <laughs> to which he was very confused, he unlocked the door, and I have never moved so quickly out of a space. <laughs> no explanation, we're just done. So the best thing about cabin weekends is that you then get to talk about all your adventures. I didn't miss coffee time. I had been in there probably about three hours. Um, Dave's interpretation, wow, I can't imagine how you were so calm when I let you out of that, out of that box. And, I, it, and I'm anxious, it, he has similar anxieties to me, like we understand each other, and I'm like, I don't know. Um, my sister and her boyfriend thought I was sleeping in the hammock the whole time because like the blankets looked like I was there. Then there's my brother, who had seen the orange shoe and thought it just meant that I needed privacy. I don't know how that makes any sort of sense in any world. <laughs> I love Alan, but I don't know. So <laughs> here's the thing. I will likely get locked in an outhouse at some point again in my life. Not a real one. I certainly literally will never get locked in an outhouse again. I never shut that door the rest of the weekend. I now check to see if there are locks that will swing shut behind you. But I do think in life there will be times when I am stuck, hung over, in a dark box, and really I have fought and I am still fighting to reach that space where the answer is not dead yet.
Next up, Anne Bonnie has a plan to find the culprit when she discovers someone has been pilfering from her jelly belly jar. So I spent the summer of my 11th birthday unpacking boxes in our new home at the Lydra Marriott Hotel in Athens, Greece. We had moved overseas about three years prior and my father's, with my father's hotel managing job. Compared to Saudi Arabia and Egypt where we lived before, being in a European country was a lot more like the US. But we would still be without Honey Nut Cheerios and McDonald's and the latest American pop music and fashions and other things that American kids take for granted. That summer, we had stopped in London and we had gone to Harrods, the fancy department store. Uh, and I had used my vacation money to buy a huge bag of Jelly Bellies, which was my very favorite candy. And I had also picked up a tall, delicate, cylindrical jar with the lid with a big ball on top. And I thought it would be very classy and a great way to display my uh, precious Jelly Bellies in our new home. And every time we went back to the US, we would stockpile like this. And usually it was Kraft macaroni and cheese so that we could slowly enjoy this stuff throughout the year before we went back again. And this was my plan with the Jelly Bellies. So part of my dad's employment deal was that they pay for our residence. So we ended up living in the hotel. And we lived in the hotel in Athens, so I was pretty used to it. And the cool thing was we had the benefit of having housekeeping on a weekly basis. But for some reason, my mom would always make us clean our rooms before they came. So it was a weekly battle that she always seemed to win. And I would stomp back to my room grumpily and shove everything under the bed or in a closet before Ritza, our regular housekeeper, got there. So one day, I went to my classy Jelly Belly jar to eat my daily ration of five Jelly Bellies, and I heard the familiar, beautiful sound of the glass pinging against the side of the jar as I carefully removed the lid. Would today be an island punch day? I love those purple little balls of joy. Or maybe I'd get crazy and mix a chocolate pudding with a peanut butter, because you could do that with Jelly Bellies, right? Not the regular old dumb old Jelly Bellies where they didn't taste like the flavor. Like Jelly Bellies really tasted like the flavor. So as I moved a few beans aside with my finger and trying to make my decision, I noticed that my hand was farther in the jar than it had been before. There were more gone than I had eaten. Somebody was stealing my Jelly Bellies. So I stomped, of course, into my brother's room and immediately accused him of stealing my jelly bellies, which he quickly told me to shut up, get the hell out of his room. And I remembered he hates them. And that was part of the reason why I liked them so much, because I didn't have to share them with his stupid face. <laughs> so I went back to the adjoining room and slumped down on my bed. I had tears in my eyes. Who was eating my jelly bellies? Ritza. It had to be the housekeeper, and I leapt up and started down the hall to my mom's room. I was going to tell her, but then I stopped. She wasn't going to believe me over an adult. I needed proof. I needed to catch Ritza in the act. Now, Ritza usually came on Friday while we were at school, but as luck would have it, the following Friday was a Greek holiday. She wasn't coming. She was coming on Saturday when I was going to be home. So I hurried through my breakfast on Saturday morning and then went back to my room. And there was the housekeeping cart a couple doors down. I went in. I knew she'd be in there soon. As soon as I heard her next door, I flattened myself on the floor and slipped under the bed. This was it. I would catch her in the act and expose her for the thief that she was. 
It took her a little longer than I thought it would for her to get there. <laughs> and the bed was a little lower to the ground than I realized. And as I waited impatiently and uncomfortably, turning my head, trying not to scrape my chin on this scratchy hotel carpet again, finally I heard a light knock at the door. Housekeeping. And this was it. I felt completely silent. I felt like a female James Bond about to nab the bad guy. And the door opened. And in she came. I heard her pull the sheets off the bed and take the towels from the bathroom. And then I heard the footsteps over to the coffee table. And I wanted to point my ear towards where she was. So I carefully turned my head again and smushed my nose against the rug. And then I heard it, that beautiful sound of delicate glass against glass and the tinkle of jelly beans against the jar. The blood rushed to my face, and it was just for a second, but I heard the unmistakable sound of her hands in the jelly jar. <laughs> then the vacuum turned on, and as my mind whirred, I was trying to figure out what to do. I knew I had to act. I knew why they were disappearing, and I shimmied to the edge of the bed near the coffee table. I was poised to spring out the next time I heard the noise. The vacuum turned off, and it was quiet for a while. My ear against the floor was falling asleep. I had to get out of here. And then I heard the infuriating noise again of jelly bean selection. And then, mmm. <laughs> she was savoring the booty. How dare she? It was probably even an island punch one. And all my 11-year-old bra brain could think was, how was a poor kid living overseas, deprived of the traditional luxuries of a childhood in the US, supposed to have a regular American upbringing if the staff was stealing her precious, rare treats? This just wasn't fair. I heaved a few deep breaths and almost dove from my hiding place with pointed finger and a aha. I would face the villain, and she would cry an apology and fall to her knees, begging for mercy but I stopped myself at the, just the last minute. I chickened out. <laughs> I couldn't figure out quite what I was gonna do after the aha. <laughs> and at 11, I was finally learning that the way I think things are gonna go usually don't go that way. And so I decided to stay put. I would tell my mom. She'd know what to do. So I heard the shower go on. Rita was cleaning the bathroom, which bought me a few minutes. I slithered my body halfway out from under the bed, reached up on the nightstand, grabbed the phone, pulled it down to the bed. Now this was 1984, so this is one of the clunky old-fashioned ones with the plug that actually goes in the wall. And I dialed the number to my parents' room, and my mom answered, Mom, I know who's been stealing my jelly bellies. Why are you whispering? Mom, I'm under the bed. I heard Rita. And she immediately was like, get out of there. And the phone went dead. So I quietly replaced the handset. I could still hear the water in the bathroom, and I knew I had a few quick minutes. So I left the phone under the bed. I shimmied to the left, hoping that my brother had left his door unlocked. I got my body full out from under the bed and started standing up. And then I heard Rita coming back into the room towards the coffee table. So I slammed my body flat on the ground. I didn't move. jelly bean thievery. <laughs> my heart pounded in my chest. If she looked behind her, she would see me flat on the ground next to the bed. I held my breath trying to stop my thundering heartbeat. I waited silently until I heard her go back into the hallway. I sprung up, reached for the doorknob to my brother's room, turned it, it clicked open, and I rushed through and sprinted down the, room, the, the hall to my mom. 
crashing through the door, I was all gibberish, angry, stomping, fuming, and demanding the thief be brought to justice. We couldn't have a thief in the hotel. The guests trusted us, and they needed us to be honest, and the Greek government would probably also want to know about this. <laughs> Mom was sitting there quietly, sipping a cup of tea. There was another one across from her, and once I quieted down, she motioned for me to sit down. Mom calm meant that someone was going to get a talking to, and I couldn't wait to hear the smackdown she was planning for Ritza. <laughs> I stomped over to the table, plunked down, put two spoons of sugar in my tea, and stirred, mirroring the calm of my co-conspirator. So, what are we going to do about the situation we have before us? Mom looked at me with one eyebrow raised. She said, nothing and sipped her tea. It suddenly dawned on me that I was the one about to get the talking to, so I re-strengthened my efforts, but she was stealing, and stealing is wrong. You've always taught me that. She's a thief, mama thief, and I have the rug burns to prove it. <laughs> She's not a thief, Anne. She kept stirring, and I I'm <laughs> And then she closed her eyes and shook her head, and that was a very clear sign that it was time for me to shut up. Why do you love those jelly beans so much? She asked me. Duh, I eloquently replied and went on to explain how delicious they were and how I had to go all the way to London to get them and I only had so many and I couldn't get any more anytime soon. I slurped my tea and suspicious that somehow I was making her point instead of my own. Then she asked me how I thought Ritza felt about the jelly beans. I didn't care how Ritza thought about my jelly beans. They were mine and she was a thief. And then I remembered how she'd clinked through the jar for a couple seconds, probably trying to get the one that she really liked. And then the mmm <laughs> that I heard of her enjoying that candy that was so rare, and maybe it was kind of a nice break on her work day. Maybe she had a favorite bean like I did, and so I, <sighs> she probably likes them. I was embarrassed. My eyes were in my lap, wishing I had the jar with me then, because actually a buttered Popcorn jelly bean would have been really good with that tea, right, Dad? Mom and Ritza had kind of become friends, and so I should have known that she'd take her side. A few weeks ago, Ritza had showed us a picture of her daughter, Elena, and suddenly I thought about Elena and wonder if Elena ever got in trouble and had to sit across from her mom drinking tea with her face flushed and her eyes down. I started thinking about Elena and Ritza and what their house looked like and if they had a car and if they had floral curtains like we did. I'd never thought about her outside of being our housekeeper. So I looked at my mom. I said, Mom, do you think Ritza's ever had Kraft macaroni and cheese? Mom smiled. She said, probably not. So we sipped our tea quietly, and I thought about living my whole life in Greece, never even knowing about macaroni and cheese and Captain Crunch. I'd probably steal that stuff, too, if I couldn't get them any other way. I mean, that stuff is delicious. I wondered if she ever got to go to London with her kids to see all the beautiful things at Harrods, and I kind of doubted it. So when I was done, I quietly set my mug on the sink and walked back to my room. Ritza was gone, and I stood in front of my jar of jelly beans trying to decide whether to hide them the next time she came so I could protect my special little beans of joy. I took the lid off the jar with a ting, fished through for a purple one, put it on my tongue, and started chewing it and savoring the deliciousness. And then I set the lid back on the jar and decided I'd leave it right there. There were probably enough for both Rita and me. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
And in our last story, I set out to find a new version of myself in Mexico and have a bit of a challenge when it's time to find my way back. Okay. So, after my father died in March 2007, my siblings and I had to go through his apartment, determining what to donate, what to throw out, what was worth keeping as is, and what was worth keeping but fixing. The grief loop led me to taking stock of my own life in much the same way. What's valuable? What's crap? What stays? What goes? And the results of that audit were pretty bleak. My go-nowhere job was predictably going nowhere, but I didn't have the energy to apply for new jobs. It hurt my, the very thought hurt my head. And my boyfriend was essentially checking out of our relationship, not putting any effort into it, but the thought of applying for a new boyfriend hurt my heart. It would have probably hurt my body had I stayed any longer at the apartment. It was very poorly maintained, and it was just basically crumbling all around me. And it was all just one giant rut that I regarded as my lousy fate, things I couldn't change. It was just what my life was going to be. And I thought and thought and thought about it. What can I change? But I didn't actually do anything. And then in 2009, I reached this point where I realized I cannot do this anymore. I need to challenge myself so that my life is not basically going through the motions. And exactly one day after I decided that I have to be start that path to finding something new, my brother called me, just out of the blue, and said, do I want to join him in Corretero, Mexico to open a business teaching English? Um, yes, please and thank you. So once all my paperwork was in order, after a few months, Jay flew in to drive with me. But in a stroke of horrible timing, our departure actually coincided with the swine flu outbreak. So, um, you know, the State Department said no non-essential travel to Mexico, and even though I had a whole new life waiting for me on the other side of the border, um, you know, the, the, the government, that's not really essential in their eyes. So we got sidelined. But once we could get going after that two-week setback, it was relatively smooth. Jay had lived in Mexico for decades and could navigate the trip easily. He knew the terrain. He knew what highways to take without having to map it out. He knew which border towns were safest so that we weren't at risk of petty crime and narco violence, or at least it was less so. And we alternated driving, uh, we alternated our driving from Chicago to Texas, but then once we got to Mexico, he just totally took over. And, uh, you know, he, he, it was 10 hours from the border to where we were going, which was uh, the suburb of Carretero called Juriquia, which is where I was going to be renting a townhouse. So the border patrol at the entry point in Monterey, actually, like my brother, he had taken out his resident visa to start going through the process of that it's okay for us to enter the country. And the border patrol just waved him on, just like, you're cool. And I, I was kind of disappointed. I had gone through so much process gathering these documents, making sure I was doing everything by the letter to prove that, yes, the USDA says that my dog Jackson can come into the country with me, and it is okay that I am with Jackson. <laughs> but 
didn't need to show a thing. They were just like, you're cool. So um, I stayed in Mexico for about eight months. Maybe I would have stayed longer had the business panned out, but we were uh, just not doing well. Most people would walk in, gather some literature, and then leave and never follow up. I mean, my brother is a professional translator. I have several years of teaching college-level English behind me, so we were charging the rates that we thought were appropriate. But unfortunately, everybody thought we were too expensive. So we only had two students that whole time. Um, one was a gentleman who wanted to get a corporate job at Zumba headquarters in Florida, and he needed help with business writing. And the other student was a 13-year-old girl who was not quite so interested in the complexities of verb conjugation and really wanted to spend all of her time informing me of her opinions of my hair. <laughs> um, <laughs> The sentences that she did direct at me, actually, she, a classmate of hers, uh, a German kid, um, she just loved the way that he said teacher. And so she would start conversations with me so that she could say, teacher. <laughs> so Jay and I both had very busy freelance businesses, his way busier than mine, and we couldn't agree on what to do next. And so in October 2009, I decided to come back to the States. But the travel would be way more challenging on the way out. Jay's resident visa had lapsed, and he couldn't leave the country. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I wanted to leave within a given time frame, but that was not going to happen. And once I left, I didn't have anywhere to go. All my stuff was in storage. I was almost 40, and so you know, couch surfing at friends' houses just didn't seem realistic. <laughs> and I had a dog in tow. so. The decision was made that I was going to fly back into the Chicago area for my 20th high school reunion, and then my mom would come with me. And then together, <laughs> all three of us, include, well, four of us if you include Jackson, um, we would drive as far as my brother could go, which was Monterey, Mexico, and then he would jump out, get on a plane to go home, and then I would drive the remainder of the, the trip to, uh, through Mexico, about 130 miles. And I decided I'm not gonna stop, and I'm not gonna go back to Chicago. You know, it would be really easy to go back to what I know, to where I have been, but I wanted to try something new. And so I decided that, you know, I'm just gonna temporarily stop in Traverse City. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll see where I end up. So I had so much anxiety about taking the wheel, and it kept me in a fitful sleep the night before. So I slept. Like, there was just this sliver. I had all my stuff all over the car, and there was just this little sliver left for me um, with Jackson on my lap, and I just slept the whole way. And then once we dropped off Jay at the airport in Monterey, and he had just he left us with, I didn't have GPS, so he left us with handwritten directions on the back of an envelope. And so, when we dropped him off at the airport, I just I had to collect myself. And I was like, okay, you know what? I said I wanted challenges, right? I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Fuck. 
It wasn't an easy drive, but it was remarkably unremarkable considering how much worse it could have gone. Like, no paratroopers fell from the sky to come after us when I accidentally drove right through the exit point in Monterey. I don't, maybe there was someone in the booth. I don't know. I, for some reason, I was just like, hey, I'm driving. What the fuck did I just do? But nobody stopped me, so I just kept going. Those handwritten directions promised a highway, and instead we found a dirt road. <laughs> but we figured it out. And then th it was just miles and miles and miles of desolate high, uh, desert. <laughs> and every time a car was catching up to us, I, got, I would get so tense. But they just would drive right past us, didn't care about my Illinois license plate. Nobody messed with us. We were good. And then finally we got to Nuevo Laredo. But then I started to panic because it seemed like we should have found the border and there was no bridge in sight. And the car's digital compass consistently said N, so I knew we were going in the right direction, but where was the actual place to get out of Mexico? And I was so relieved. I actually, there was a cop next to me at a, at a stoplight. And I was, I started to roll down my, I don't know why I'm doing that. I have a, one of those. <laughs> well, but I, I, uh, I started to roll down my window to ask the cop, you know, where's the border? But before the light turned green, he just took off. And then he hit another red light and I caught up to him. And before that light turned green, he just took off. <laughs> and so that kept going for several stoplights until finally I went through the red light too got his attention, <laughs> and he told us where to go. <laughs> we zigged, we zagged. We weren't actually that far. So it brought us right to the, uh, the entry point into the United States, or at least the very long, jam-packed, slow-moving, beating-down midday sun line to get out of the country. So two hours later, it's my turn, and I spoke with the border guard while German shepherds rounded the car to sniff out drugs. You know, the, while the dogs are trained to sniff out the drugs, the guards are trained to sniff out inconsistencies, and so I kept getting asked the same questions over and over again. Why were you in Mexico? What's in your car? And I kept saying and saying and saying, I was in Mexico teaching English, and in my car I have clothes, books, and a toaster. I don't know why I specified those three things. I had much more in my car than just that. <laughs> I had a TV, and I didn't want to declare it because I thought they would make me pay taxes on it. So, you know, I had that like kind of hidden under a bunch of stuff. But I also had hundreds of dollars worth of birth control pills, like packs, hidden throughout my car. Because <laughs> here's the thing, in Mexico, Birth control is significantly cheaper than it is in the United States. They sell it over the counter there. And so, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to distribute it. It was all for me. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I had plans. <laughs> but so I wanted to still have them on the other side of the border, so I tucked them in the in between the seat and you know, in the wheel well and in the console and in the glove box. <laughs> so at first when the guard asked me, tie Jackson to a bench and then we will have the dog sniff around your car. <laughs> you know, okay, fine, I was right about to do that and then he saw that Jackson was in fact a pit bull. And so he said, okay, leave the dog in the car and take all your stuff out. 
<laughs> Never mind that everything was perfectly Tetris to just let, you know, it would have been a bear to take everything out and put it back in. And because I'm a genius, I actually exclaimed, ah, oh, crap. But for whatever reason, that did not, <laughs> that actually helped my case because then the guard said, you know what? It's fine. Just take out that suitcase, that suitcase, and that box. And wouldn't you know, that was my clothes, my books, and my toaster. <laughs> so mom and I kept driving over the next three days. We stopped in San Antonio one night, Memphis the next. And then from there, no stopping until we got to Traverse. And we arrived on December 9th, 2009, just as the season's first significant snowfall began began to unleash. That was a brutal fucking winter, and I was like, what did I do? But <laughs> that's another story. Would I ever make this drive again? No way. Absolutely not. Three years after that trip, nine bodies were found hanging from a bridge, and 14 decapitated heads left as a gift to the mayor of Nuevo Laredo. The narco violence did, in fact, catch up with, uh, uh, with uh, the Nuevo Laredo government. It was a surprise to even me that I was even trying something so uncomfortably new in the first place, and that I didn't return to the place of origin when I was done. It's damn near impossible to thrust yourself into, you know, beyond your comfort zone and emerge, not emerge, like you, 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 when you do something new, you're gonna emerge a different person. It's just, that's how it happens. But the simple, or not so simple, act of driving away from my comfort zone and then on to something else, it really showed me that all that time that I had spent wallowing in my rut, all that time I had probably been far more capable of something than I realized. Thank you. So as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, Leslie Tai is here with us. I mentioned her work in the arts, but I have to say she's also a friend who got me some pretty damn awesome David Bowie socks for my last birthday, which means she gets me, like really gets me. And one thing I've always loved about Leslie is that her hair color changes so often and her glasses almost always match, but today they don't. <laughs> uh, Leslie, how are you today? I am hanging in there. I'm doing yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Winter got you down? Oh, no, just a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have a show coming up. Yes, we do. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Leslie produces mashups. Um, I'll let you explain it sure. so that I don't explain it and then say, now correct everything I just said. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we have a cumbersome name. We are Mashup Rock and Roll Musical. So, But that pretty much says what we do. We make these mashup musicals that have some kind of like modern music or rock and roll bent to them. So um, our current one is How Grinchy Met the Who. Uh, so a, kind of a Christmas parody about the Grinch, um, but also the Who's Tommy. Uh, and this is a remake, uh, like a, a revamping? Yeah, revamping, yes. This was our very first show in 2013, so we're coming back um, this Christmas with that. Um, and then working towards our next one after it. Excellent. Um, yeah, I think that's actually where I first uh, met you, was uh, or became aware of you. Actually, I'm going to talk a little bit later on about um, how I first learned of your existence, but I think when I first, like, put... Uh, like met you um was 
uh, going to that show. Yeah. So, um, okay. So actually, uh, I should back up and say that, you know, you're here today to help us talk about the theme for our next show for Hearsay, um, the Island of Misfit Toys. Um, do you consider your mashup troupe a collection of misfits? <laughs> Definitely. I would definitely (laughs) say that. And I would say that basically I've pretty much always felt like a misfit and uh, in a good way. Like I've never really wanted to be uh, normal. Mm -hmm. I think normal is kind of a a, a, that's like a derogatory term to me. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually thinking about that, that like misfit is supposed to be a negative Mm-hmm. but it seems like something to strive to be <laughs> absolutely I mean my like my childhood idol was Cindy Lauper you mm-hmm. know who was like her whole thing was like she's so unusual so that's what I wanted to be I wanted to be different from everybody else yeah okay I gotta tell you uh, a couple years ago I was dating a guy who was Greg Allman's sound engineer mm-hmm. and his next gig was Cindy Lauper <sighs> and we broke up before I got to join him on the oh, show. Oh, <laughs> that's definitely sad. So rude. <laughs> I mean, I was the one who did it, but still, so rude. <laughs> um, I would never stay with someone just right. to meet. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Would you stay with someone just to meet Cindy Lauper? <laughs> Gosh, that's a hard one. Maybe. I guess it depends on like how much time would have to pass. Like, right. How much time in this relationship, but... I would consider it. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I rewatched the video from the actual, the Rudolph movie that mm-hmm. the Island of Misfit Toys, the concept, comes from. And I'm watching, you know, there are all these, like, there are these adorable toys. And so they have a few flaws. So what? I mean, the singing is a little tortured. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the animation is fantastic. Right. I just, no, I, I, it, it's interesting to me that... I don't know if there's anyone out there who actually thinks misfits are bad. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I always thought of, um, you know, someone kind of being on their own, um, someone kind of being, you know, different from everybody else, again, as being like something to, to try to be. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a way to kind of stand out. But I think also, um, I also am a person that doesn't, like, I I don't want to let things go. And so, and I, I don't know if you know, it kind of, you made me think of this when you're talking about the original, like Island of the, the Misfit Toys. Um, there was this, like the, the, there was this little cartoon. I don't even remember what it was, but it was something about like an old toy being thrown away and um, about how, uh, you know, because it wasn't, it wasn't, it was fine, but it was like, wasn't interesting to the person anymore. And, you know, it basically kind of goes on this little journey and becomes like a present for somebody who really needs it. Mm. And I guess that's what I connect to as well. It's like, just again, yeah, just because it's a little bit different doesn't mean that it doesn't have a place in this world. And that's kind of what I always thought about being a misfit. Like, it's just about finding your place. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The, uh, I'm very interested in this, uh, cartoon. (laughs) I'm trying to remember what it was, but it, it, it like always stuck with me. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I actually, uh, have a bunch of toys that I've kept from my childhood days. Not, I mean, of course, not all of them. Um, <laughs> but uh, what toys have you kept? I have, I still have um, a Grover doll. It was the very first gift oh. I remember receiving for the December holidays. Um, and so I still have that, and I have a stuffed frog. It's mostly stuffed animals. <laughs> yeah, I, 
I kind of keep everything. Like Ooh. it's very hard to let, I have a hard time letting things go. <laughs> um, I have this, um, so like stuffed animal wise, I have this blue footed booby stuffed animal. Okay. I mean, talk about again, like unusual <laughs> misfit, right? Like everybody had teddy bears or, you know, things like that. And I had this blue footed booby that I named Ralph. And man, I still have him. I just, I loved him. I don't know. He was just different. He was like, not like any other stuffed animal that I'd ever seen, you know? Is he in good shape still? Yeah, he's in pretty good shape. Yeah. He's, he's definitely a little bit loved, but Mm -hmm. he's in pretty good shape. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I keep everything I have. Um, you know, a lot of Tigger stuff because I was like, I really like Tigger again, kind of the the misfit of that. <laughs> well, I guess they were all kind of misfits and Winnie the Pooh. Um, but uh, you know, the one that was always kind of, I guess, bothersome to people. <laughs> um, I have, so, oh my gosh, I have so many toys. It's ridiculous. Lots of action figures. I have a Pee Wee Herman doll. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, oh, I have a um. I mean, this was not from childhood. I I got this later in life because I couldn't resist because I do attach to these childhood pop culture things. Um, It was a Hey Kool-Aid Man bobblehead. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) And actually he's missing an arm, but he still bobbles and that's all I need. (laughs) Right. And don't just throw him away because he's missing an arm. Exactly. Yeah. He's unique now. Yes. He's he's unlike any others. He needs me now more than ever. Exactly. (laughs) I have to help plow through the walls <laughs> he'll do the oh yeah part <laughs> so um so uh your first mashup was uh grinchy meets the who um and now it's also the current one which is a revamping um you did the sound of uzis mm-hmm. which was the sound of music plus a zombie apocalypse a zombie apocalypse mm-hmm. uh bromeo versus the juliets mm-hmm. which was shakespeare meets boy band girl band right personally that was my favorite <laughs> <laughs> with uh with the whole drag component everybody was in drag yes mm-hmm. yes um that was absolutely my favorite i would <laughs> love for that to be revamped if i may uh put in my personal <laughs> request that's kind of ideas that you know we'll, we want to try to do like a new one and then an, and then bring back an old one and then mm-hmm. a new one bring back an old one cool um and then there was the Bowie and Prince mm-hmm. mashup, which with also the little prince. Yeah, the little prince and the man from Mars. Yes. And you missed one. <gasps> I missed one. Our second one, actually. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So that was Grimm's alternative fairy tales. Oh. So it was Grimm's fairy tales mashed up with 80s pop stars. So we had a little red, um, little red, what, I can't remember. Her name. Basically, she was Cindy Lauper, but she was Little Red Riding Hood mm-hmm. meets Cindy Lauper. I played um, Jet Black, so it was Snow White means Joan J- meets Joan Jet. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Yep. So I was in a coma through most of it, but <laughs> <laughs> I woke up at the end finally. Is it hard to stay still for a whole mashup? It was. It was hard. Actually, what was hard was. Um, so yeah. So I played Joan Jet, or I played yes. So I was in a coma. Um, and the prince actually sang girlfriend in a coma. <laughs> I was walking around through a lot of it, just like, you know, like in a trance kind of thing. But then there's this whole section where I'm lying on the ground, um, and they're doing all this stuff. And I would get so enamored watching them, you know, and get that I would forget sometimes 
when I was supposed to wake up, actually. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to wake up at this point. <laughs> you just got so lost. In yeah, the- <laughs> I'm just watching them. I was like, oh, I'm still on stage. Wait. <laughs> I'm in this play. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, do you have a dream mashup that you'd be willing to tell us about, or is everything oh. proprietary and secret? It's We're pretty secretive, but we do have this idea that I'll share because I've been kind of sharing these. We, we have this idea we want to do like um like a gala kind of fundraiser thing or something some kind of like big you know special event where we do mashups that we could never actually do because we probably couldn't actually sell them so um things like um uh tom waits for godot yeah (laughs) so we would do like a little scene and a number from this imaginary mashup so we have that one and then we were just we were just talking last a couple nights ago at rehearsal and and one of the troop members came up with I was like what about apocalypse now and she was like well how about apocalypse now that's what I call music volume 4000 (laughs) because there's like so many volumes of that Like, like that's pretty good that's pretty good so yeah we have that kind of idea it was oh another one actually I can't even I can't take credit for this this was somebody this is just a friend who came up with this one was uh um uh Bjork and Mindy oh my gosh <laughs> okay well I know what I'm going to be doing for the rest of today <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you think of any good ones from our way cause... yeah I, I I won't tell people your email address because you'll just get bumped I know right <laughs> find us on Facebook you know so right (laughs) what about (laughs) um okay so if you don't follow Leslie on social media you might not know that she uh was proposed to by her husband via a fake movie trailer Mm -hmm. and this is actually where I'm I, I I what I was mentioning before I'm gonna interrupt my train of thought here and say something about that trailer um it was basically the story of how you and Tony met and I knew the person who was helping put it together mm-hmm. and I bumped into him at a coffee house and he was trying to cast the role of Tony <laughs> with like someone who you wouldn't recognize right. so that you wouldn't know right away in the trailer um, that that was for you. And um, <laughs> I just think it's really hilarious that before I ever knew you or Tony, I knew your proposal and your just your love story. Yeah. <laughs> like I actually pl- like played a very small role. I, I gave ideas to Lars but he didn't use any of them um but I actually like I played a part Mm -hmm. sort of in your (laughs) proposal video um so every once in a while we we run into somebody that we're we're like wait you were in our proposal video (laughs) I don't know you at all but you played me or you played my friend or yeah and actually now I know most of the people who were in it and I didn't at the time. That's funny. <laughs> like uh, Jill Cook played you. Mm-hmm. I know her now. Mm-hmm. Um, I know her now too. Yeah. Now, yeah, Jess now I know she played the friend. Mm-hmm. And I, now I know Jess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's pretty hilarious how, uh, I don't know. Is that just small town stuff or is that art world stuff or is that both? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of, I think it's both probably, but I think, um, you know, I mean, it's actually one of the things I love about Traverse City is that like, we really are only like, less than six degrees connected to everybody in some way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, so that, and that really was like, I, I can't believe that how, how Tony and Lars pulled that trailer off because I, it exactly what you described where like I didn't get it at first I didn't get it at first because I didn't recognize I was like oh they're they're gonna show a you know Michigan made movie and this is so great our community is so great and 
And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's my dress. That's my dress. <laughs> Why are they playing this song? She has a puppet. Um. <laughs> Uh, yeah well now that I know you both if you ever renew your vows I want to be there all right because <laughs> I did not know you at the time so right? I was not at your wedding yeah there are so many people who had such fun weddings in Traverse City mm-hmm. and I met them after so. I know <laughs> I was thinking about that too no we we do actually we want to do like a screening of our wedding because it was a mashup rock and roll musical wedding mm-hmm. and so we want to like rent a space and do a screening and invite all the people who didn't get to come the first time <laughs> Okay, well, I will stay on your good side so that I get an invitation. (laughs) So, okay, so anyway, back to where I was going with that, after that little side trip. Um, So you also, um, you had a friend who recently got married, and for part of her bachelorette party, you filmed a music video. Mm -hmm. Um, You and Tony record yourselves singing when you're on road trips to Colorado. True. Um, You tell stories at Hearsay. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess my question is, what do you do that's subtle and small? (laughs) (laughs) um if it's if the answer is nothing well (laughs) i i won't be mad (laughs) no i actually i do have an answer for that in that i guess maybe i hope with my teaching a little bit you know i teach screenwriting and film um and to high schoolers and um i hope that I am subtle with them in that I'm trying to help them like find their own voice and tell their own stories and figure out what kind of artists they are. And so, you know, I, although I, you know, give them my feedback and everything, I'm, I'm always like trying to, to do it in a way that's, that's trying to help them figure out what they want to say. And I don't want them to ever feel like I'm saying, well, you should do this. Mm -hmm. I'm the teacher and I know more and you should do this. And sometimes actually I have to kind of like fight against that. I have to kind of tell them, no, it's really okay. You make the decision. It's your story. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just trying to communicate to you, you know, my understanding when you, you have these images, what you're trying to say, you know, and get to what you're, what you want to say and make sure that's communicated. So I hope that I'm subtle with that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I actually bump into something similar when I um, workshop. stories with people who are telling it hearsay um you know I often have a lot of feedback which is based on what I know about audience response Mm -hmm. and performance needs um and so often it's really just a matter of rearranging sentences right and um but sometimes it's you know like hey what if you said this like this but then I always make very sure to say you don't have to change that it's just a suggestion mm-hmm. um and sometimes people do use my exact words but they don't have to mm-hmm. and I and I really try to hammer that home that this is just me giving feedback right but yeah it's hard to uh I work as an editor I mean I'm I'm I <laughs> professionally I rearrange people's words <laughs> it's it's uh it's it's an impulse mm-hmm. to to fight when mm-hmm. it's uh yeah but eh, that's the thing I mean the whole point of storytelling is to tell your own story exactly so. Um, so I, I, I failed to mention that we have a, an additional special guest we in the do. studio today, Bullwinkle, the shy weenie. Um, yeah, that's you. <laughs> um, sitting on Leslie's lap. Do you consider Bullwinkle to be a bit of a misfit? Oh, for sure. He is. I mean, first of all, like we didn't even get what we were supposed to get. We were supposed to get a dachshund and we rescued him from, uh, from Cherryland Humane Society and, they said he was a dachshund and he looked like a dachshund. And then he started to grow taller because mm-hmm. he was a puppy. He was mm-hmm. really tiny. He started to grow taller. And then he started to arch his arch his back. 
And I'm like, dachshunds do not have this, like, he's like a hunchback, basically. <laughs> and so we're like, he, what's going on? And we kind of figured out that, like, yeah, yeah, he's a chihuahua dachshund mix. Mm-hmm. Little stinky chimini guy. Um, so, yeah, he's definitely not what we signed up for, but we love him anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's super cute. <laughs> super skittish, but super cute. Yep. <laughs> so thank you both for joining us today. And everyone, check out the mashups so you can go to future shows. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and thank you to our photography sponsor, Harp Star. And another thanks to our in-studio guest, Leslie Tai. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in December when our theme is The Island of Misfit Toys. Thanks for listening.